This is episode 87 of Herpetological Highlights. I am Ben Marshall, and co-hosting, as always, is Tom Major. This week, I mean, I feel like it's been a little bit of a bit of a delay with this episode, but we're we're back, and this week we have some papers about sort of frogs versus invasive species, but also frogs as invasive species. Yeah. Yes, it's a very mixed episode for frogs this one and we're looking at some in some instances where invasive species have arrived and they're interacting in complicated ways with the species in the native environments which were already present when they came and like you said one to do with frogs and mongooses apparently the plural of mongooses is never mongoose according I pres- to I, 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 I have heard from from people in the field it's actually man geese is oh. the term you should be using. All right, well, then I'll use that exclusively throughout this episode. Um, but yeah, no, so the first paper is about mongooses and how they're influencing frogs. And the second one is about garter snakes and bullfrogs and how they're interacting in an environment where the bullfrogs don't necessarily belong. But it, I think in both cases, there's kind of unexpected outcomes from invasive species entering where, you know, you kind of think of invasive species envi- sort of arriving in a place and having just blanket negative consequences but sometimes the plot is a little bit thicker than that you know eradication by invasive species of native species might not be complete and the native species may have a trick or two up their sleeve uh, perhaps evolutionarily speaking to help deal with the new threats who knows i mean i don't know i i feel i feel like we shouldn't be surprised when things turn out to be more complicated than they are when it comes to ecology no, it's you're dealing easy. with complex systems. We are dealing with all these systems that have these interwoven webs, and they're constantly changing and they're dynamic. So even if you understand it, I mean, you're never going to fully understand it. But even if you think you might have some sort of grasp on it at one point, yeah, something might change. <laughs> so, yeah, constant, constant study, constant sort of observation of these these systems, super super important. And almost to take nothing for granted, I would say. Agreed. Should we get on to the first one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we have a paper by Komeni, Iwai, and Kaji. You know, apologies for the pronunciations. Um, in Biological Invasions, published this year, 2021. Rapid responses in morphology and performance of native frogs induced by predation pressure from invasive mongooses. Yes. We are looking at a little frog from Japan, correct? Yes. A specific island in Japan. It's actually an endemic species to the very island that we're discussing in this paper, which is pretty cool. So a very special frog. It is. It's called Odorana amamiensis, an endemic species to Amami Island, and it's called the Amami tip-nosed frog. And they call them the tip-nosed frog, Ben. Do you know why? Um, because they've got a hilarious little nose. I mean, I'm looking at pictures of them, and I I can't say that they they um. It's quite subtle, actually. I wouldn't have been able yeah. to tell you unless I read it. To be honest, I don't think it's mm-hmm. something you can really tell from a picture. Maybe in in life, it's more obvious. But apparently, they have um a slight overbite, so their upper jaw is longer than their lower jaw, which yeah. has led to the name tip nosed frog. And they're not very big. They're about females are about four inches long, males maybe two and a half inches long, and uh, they look that's, quite classically that's, froggy. That's don't like they? 50, 60 millimeters and, and 80 to 100 millimeters for those oh, yeah. who don't want to work in some sort of ancient imperial measurement system. <laughs> yes. So what was that? 600 millimeters and 90, 980 millimeters. <laughs> <laughs> Divide those by 10. Yeah. <laughs> Close <again>. enough. <laughs> yeah. No. So, uh, yeah, they're small <laughs> frogs. A long the... frog. <laughs> there's Monstrous. I don't know there's... There was that gigantic frog, wasn't there, that's extinct now. That ate dinosaur eggs? Yeah. Yeah. But I don't think it was as big as everyone says. I think everyone's over-exaggerating. <laughs> it just had a massive face. <laughs> what? It's, actually, it's uh, just really short. Yeah, they just... Yeah, we've only found fossils of the face, so we've um, scaled it up. <laughs> this frog must have been at least 950 millimetres long. <laughs> um, oh, you've hugely derailed me. So, yeah, the this Amami Island, basically... Wow. If you want to look at some photos of Amami Island, it's part of the Ryukyu Island chain, which actually has got quite a history with invasive species. Um, there's a big list of all the places where invasive reptiles and amphibians are found 
compiled by Kraus, and the Ryukyu Islands appears a lot. So there's been a lot of mistakes made around and about. But one of them was back in the nineteen late 1970s. We're talking 1979. Uh, the good folks of Amami Island had the bright idea to release only 30, just a small amount of mongooses. And they were actually called small Indian mongooses. They're named small. They're actually normally sized small Indian mongooses that were released. <laughs> and the intention was, right, we'll release all these mongooses on a mammy island. And what they're going to do is they're going to run around. They're going to munch these pesky pit vipers that everyone hates. I mean, talk about a flawed reason to release an animal. Trying to polish off pit vipers some of the coolest animals around obviously you know you don't always get the most sensible ideas coming out of the annals of power so they released these 30 mongoose mongooses mangies with the intention of them killing all these lovely pit vipers they got habu pit vipers protobothrops flaviviridis and uh, yeah what do you know my gosh releasing the mongooses turned out to be a bad idea Instead of eating the pit vipers, they reduced the numbers of other beloved native species like the Amami rabbit, the Amami tip-nosed frog, the aforementioned, and the Ryukyu odd-toothed snake, which is a Dinodon semicarinatum. semicarinatum. And uh, yeah, that obviously the reduction in native species which were actually liked, unlike the pit viper, led to an effort to control the mongooses. So yeah, basically... What was it? Fourteen years later, like yeah. wow, we made a we've made a huge mistake. Let's try and undo. Let's exactly. try and roll back time. But you know, if we've learned yeah. one thing from history, it's easier to put animals in than it is to take them out. And in from, for seven years, they sort of haphazardly re, 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 le, haphazardly removed mongooses, sort of on a more casual level. But beginning in two thousand, they started up. The Ministry of Environment started a 40-person squad called the Mongoose Busters, 40 people working full-time trapping and removing mongooses. So, you know, 40 people working 40-hour weeks to reduce mongoose populations. I mean, that's going to be a serious expense for this government. Yeah, um, you, I mean, serious expense, but really, I think it's... it's If you don't do these these sorts of things intensively, it's a bit of a waste of time and money, right? And it's dubiously ethical. If you don't if you're not doing it in a in a way to get rid of things very quickly, you're just having to do it for a long time and you end up, you know, eradicating or moving a lot more animals than you would if you did it short, intensive, get the job done. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I, t- I wholeheartedly agree with you there. Yeah, you're right. Um, obviously, the outcomes for the animals which you're eradicating have to be considered, you know. Oh, yeah, okay, you've released some mongooses and they've become a problem. You still have a duty of... You know, you have you a responsibility to those mongooses not to cause them unnecessary suffering. I mean, you already are because it's un- it's inherently unnecessary that they were there in the first place. So, yeah, you do have a moral obligation to try and eradicate them humanely, fairly. So, yeah. But, I mean, it, it, to me, it's just, um, if nothing else, it's really strong evidence just for how difficult it is to remove stuff. Because even after 11 years of this 40-man squad trying to re- remove mongoose, yeah. there's still... You know, okay, so there was 6,000-odd in 2000. There's still 169 in 2011, which, okay, it's a dramatic reduction, but how many did you put there in the first place? 30, and you've still got, you know, over five times that amount as a sort of starting population. Yeah, I I think the take-home message from that is need to sort of redouble efforts to prevent these invasions from beginning, from getting there to to stop them starting, basically, isn't it? It's always going to be cheaper to try and prevent this rather than treat symptoms you know five ten fifteen years down the line it's 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 ridiculous the idea that that you should even (laughs) you know you just don't want to risk it do you no it's so (laughs) expensive the other way and that's that's also not taking into account the sort of non-tangible costs of having your native species decimated you know we're about to talk about a paper that sort of illustrates some of the impacts but you look at, there's plenty of other examples where they couldn't eradicate them quick enough or they didn't have the money to eradicate them quick enough or there's ongoing things right now where species are growing and the chances are we're going to lose uh, species because of early mistakes. So, I mean, preventing that is a... It, <laughs> it's so important. So, so important. It cannot be overstated. It is. And so the researchers who performed this study they basically had this idea and there was some evidence from other papers that animals will change in the presence of introduced predators right so you've got to imagine this frog 
And uh, we're talking about the Amami tip-nosed frog, Odorana amamiensis. This frog lived on this island, Amami Island, and prior to them introducing the mongooses, really the only thing that this frog had to worry about predating it was the native snakes, which presumably is largely the um, pit viper, the habu pit viper that we mentioned earlier, which is a ambush predator, right? So they are accustomed to predation from ambush predators. And then the mongoose comes along, and this is no ambush predator. Mongoose's strategy is basically crawl around the environment, being slippery and sneaky all over the place, eating whatever they can find, and just nonstop hunting. And if they find an animal, they're going to pursue it, try and catch it, kill it. If anyone's ever seen a video of mongooses versus cobras, you'll see that they are tenacious in the extreme, vicious in the extreme. And uh, if you like snakes, just deeply unlikable animals, really. You've, you've really you've got to try and look past that. They're just trying to get by. But uh, the idea that the researchers have was, okay, these are frogs which formerly have only had any predation pressure from ambush sit-and-wait predators, right? So they're watching out for snakes that are just going to randomly jump out at them. Now, all of a sudden, there's a predator in their environment which is actively hunting them. Is it possible that the mongooses hunting the frogs has led to some kind of change in the frog's behavior or morphology as a result yeah basically yeah. have they evolved and changed to meet this new threat and that's what they were trying to evaluate in this study and they did that by... did, but, <laughs> sorry before you before you jump into what what they did i just want to jump on their the way they conceptualize these different uh predation strategies in the introduction yeah because they they paint it as a very you have sit and wait uh predators and you have active foragers and they mm. they cite this this cooper paper this cooper 2005 paper that that sort of gets into this uh with with lizards and they're comparing lizards and they're seeing if they can sort of group lizards into different modes or, or types of foraging yeah and the cooper paper uses uh like moves per minute like number of moves per minute and percentage time moving to try and categorize uh, via this sort of cluster analysis, whether there's groups of lizards that do one or the other, and they can be distinct like types of forager. And it's interesting in the the introduction of the paper we're we're looking at. It sounds like it's relatively uh, solid that you do have actives and you've got sit and wait, and that seems quite good. Nice binary distinction. The Cooper, the actual bits of the Cooper paper, or what I've pulled out of it. So you're saying, yeah, it can be useful to explore certain things, but overall, the sort of dichotomy, this binary, active, sit and wait, is too simplistic. And there's sort of other aspects that you that you need to be paying attention to. And I, I only draw attention to this because I wonder how much of the way this introduction's written sort of comes from wanting to summarise it quite briefly and succinctly it's like okay you've got this and this binary it's a nice example because they've got pit vipers which are sitting weights and you've got mong mongoose which i'm you know i don't know much about mongoose to be fair but that are actives what what got me was when they had their examples for sitting weight they had snakes snakes yeah they just predators, said snakes which broadly is not... which isn't accurate yeah right and that just sort of got me it got me on on this train of thought of well, there isn't really a binary distinction, is there? Uh, different snakes have different levels of sit and wait. Just you know, just within snakes, you think of a viper, okay, traditionally sit and wait, but we know that different vipers have different sort of movements and different uh, sort of home ranges and foraging areas. You then sort of get a little bit bigger, and then you've got pythons and things. Sit and wait for sure. Are they more or less sit and wait than a viper because their movements are certainly different? And then you go to the far sort of other extreme with a very active snake like a king cobra. You know, there's a lot of diversity within clade, so it's hard to summarise that stuff. But I'm also concerned that it's not... Not only is there not a binary, I'm wondering whether this sort of sit and wait versus active is even a useful uh, continuum to base things on. Because... So, like, how would you describe sit and wait? Sits in one position, waits for prey to come by, gets it. Yeah. Yeah. Active, continuously moving, looking for prey, and then takes them. Like, well, one of their examples is a wolf, which I think is great. You've got this this endurance uh, predation strategy where they are they are pursuing individuals until they get tired and they can overwhelm them. Yeah. Yeah. But how much? 
like I got I got thinking with sort of birds of prey or something like a like a gannet, where you have this active searching sort of strategy, but then you have a really sharp burst of energy, which is you know this this high burst movement to actually capture the animal. Same with something like a sparrowhawk. You've mm. got it seems like a combination of active and sit and wait in the sense that you have the active sort of prolonged foraging but then you also have the high burst movement mm. but you wouldn't call them sit and wait even though they really require high burst movement performance to get the prey and then it starts to me the whole thing started breaking down and it sort of yeah to be honest with you mate when i yeah. read that when i read that i was like okay that's a bit of an inaccuracy like you can't just say snakes are ambush predators because obviously not not entirely the case i think i think to be honest what they've done is they've gone a bit too hard on the dichotomy of ambush and not ambush when really all they're trying to suggest is the difference between the primary predation on these frogs Mm -hmm. before was that they just have to make one jump to get away whereas now a sequence of jumps is beneficial really that's all they needed to say and actually you mentioning that not all snakes are ambush predators i've just done a brief investigation into the right cute odd toothed snake and i would not be surprised if this snake is also eating these frogs because refanged colubrid sort of guy yeah there's a photo of one eating a frog on, yeah. on the website i'm on and they're clearly eating geckos if they're eating geckos and tree frogs why are they not eating uh, these other frogs and this to me looks like a snake which is going to be cruising around so yeah yeah i mean i think I think, yeah, the the oversimplification is a real thing. Um, however, I would still argue that there is a distinction to be drawn, albeit oversimplified one, between like the mongooses, presumably yeah. mongooses at this density were uh, one of the main predators that they were facing. So it does still stand to reason that they would have to develop some kind of Absolutely. But new I, ability. I, I, I but, think yeah. the, the, the statement there needing to make here is not that there are these two modes of predation and therefore prey have to switch between how to counter them. It is just that when you present a selective pressure from a predator, the prey is likely to come up with a solution that counters that foraging strategy. It doesn't matter how you conceptualize that foraging strategy. It's because like, again, think of the gannet with its active versus the burst, you know, sudden strike is it good to be really good at dodging out of the way of that sudden strike? Or do you go for something that's like super hypercrypsis so you're never subject to that strike by avoiding the sort of active predation, uh, active sort of foraging aspect when they're searching initially? Like, that, to me, I don't know. I don't know how much of this sort of binary conceptualization is sort of coming out of the way we like to think about things. We like to categorize them. We like this, either this or this. Nice, mm. simple story stuff. When really it just is talking about a, a sort of problem solution sort of scenario, which to be fair, the rest of the paper they do a great job of of describing how the frogs uh, are dealing with it. But yeah. I just feel like they- this is underselling how cool the change in prey is because it feels like they're just switching mode. They're not switching mode because there is no mode to switch to. It is just a new foraging strategy which is as complex as any other they kind of speak to this issue in the paper a little bit in a slightly Mm -hmm. different way where they're like they basically say like look previous studies have looked at changes in morphology as a result of introduced predators so okay something has physically changed about the animal as a result of this new predator right okay that's one thing but the reality is that nature isn't looking to you know i don't know what an example that isn't in this paper perhaps um in your fish example, perhaps deeper f- tail fin, right? Gives it a faster burst yeah. of speed. Nature isn't like, right, this animal needs a deeper tail fin. Nature's like, this animal needs to be faster. So focusing on the kind of morphological change rather than the resultant behavioral change is a little bit too one-dimensional. And that kind of speaks to your like oversimplification thing. Like In this paper, they do both. They look at their performance and their physical changes alongside each other, with one obviously being causal to the other. Um, So, yeah, I think if you don't... Yeah, I think think you're right. I think that human minds understand things when they're nicely categorised. But actually, you know, you've got to look at things and their kind of outcome rather than just the simple thing. Yeah, and to me, I think the, uh, the relationship between the morphological change and the actual performance change is kind of similar to that 
where you know you just need that extra layer of information it's one thing to measure an animal it's another thing to measure its performance and yeah you, you learn a lot more that way yeah well it, i i exactly it's, it's it is learning more it's just more detailed it's it's an obfuscation it's a it's a simplification which can be useful in other contexts for this one i felt like it was too much because i go in such excellent detail with this example it almost seemed yeah. Do you know you what know, it kind of <laughs> seems like? It kind of seems like someone who's an expert on mongooses wrote a paper largely about snakes. You know, I'm sure that... Well, uh, I don't know. I almost feel like it's um, one of those paragraphs for, you know, the general readership thing. It's it's a reviewer can't make it, make it more general, make it more understandable. And the way you summarise this quite complicated scenario of, of prey and predator interaction and how... Uh, traits developed to counter predation strategies while providing examples is to split it up in this way um, because they're dealing with two very you know with with extremes viper mongoose in terms of predation strategy very different but if you were to do this study on something else those extremes might not be as pronounced and therefore that dichotomy would uh, you know it would undermine your study because you couldn't separate two species because they'd be like oh they're both sitting weight they're the same yeah but if you were looking at, I don't know, so let's say pythons and vipers, um, you wouldn't want to classify them as the same if those were your two your two study species you were looking at. Because yeah, there that's... are differences, but that simplification would, would remove that even being a question. They're the same, so there's nothing yeah. to ask. Totally, really good example, because obviously, yeah, you've got the added complication of... If, you, if, if the predator that had been introduced in this case was a... I don't know, a small python attacking frogs and they, they were dealing with pythons instead of... Uh, vipers yeah Precise. the suite yeah. of adaptations is going to be totally different and then conversely if they if you know if the pit vipers were introduced where formerly they've been dealing with non-venomous predators perhaps you know you'd expect to look for changes in their resistance to venom or something like that like it's going to right. be completely different isn't it yeah. but that's that's all i was sort of getting at is you've got to just just something to bear in mind with a lot of these papers that i don't think we really draw on is why are certain things chosen in terms of to be studied like this is because they're quite an obvious difference in traits but you know there, there there is always a sort of context to the question being asked and that mm. one was just a nice example of how it might be uh might be more convenient for our sake than it is reflecting the reality on the ground or at least yeah. the, you know the way you come up with the question the actual paper itself the methods and stuff absolutely fine it's just more recognizing how we get to those questions yeah so what they wanted to do was compare the frogs uh, at the epicenter of the mongoose invasion with frogs that lived further away the idea being that frogs that lived further away from the mongoose invasion might have different physical traits to those that have been exposed to the intense predation pressure from mongooses since their introduction and they wanted to do that by looking to see if there were differences in their physical traits. So they measured some things on the frogs and they also wanted to do it in terms of their performance, which I mentioned earlier. And they did that by working out how many times a frog could jump before it was tired out. Uh, the idea being that that is a measure of endurance, how many times you can hop in a short space of time without stopping. And they also wanted to see if they could jump further or less far, depending on how close they were to the mongooses. And shall we get into what they learn about the mongoose adapted frogs? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's it, it's pretty it's it's pretty straightforward in in terms of the way they assessed things. So, a couple of leg measurements uh, basically seem to increase as you got closer to the initial uh, center of uh, the mongoose uh, release site, basically. Yeah, And what's nice is they have some previous studies that basically show that the impact on native fauna is considerably greater the closer you get to that initial release of the, of the mongoose. So there is good reason to sort of suggest the closer you are, the, the greater selective pressure these frogs have been under for a longer time. Like they do have studies that are backing that up. It's not just happenstance. You know, those previous studies looked at all sorts of things, uh, you know, elevation, vegetation, other invasive species like rats and things, and they showed that the the mongoose presence, basically how long the mongoose had been there, had a big impact on the uh, abundance of native fauna. So that that's it. That's their sort of proxy for mongoose pressure is distance to 
that initial release site. Yeah, yeah, you're right. That's really good evidence that mongooses have been having an impact, and uh, the impact was lessened further away. So, like you say, there's already this data suggests that the mongooses have kind of a sphere of influence that can be recognised. Yeah, and yeah, as you said, um, the frogs that had been exposed to heavy amounts of mongooses had longer tibias, which is the lower leg bone, uh, and also longer thigh bones. So these are obviously longer bones in the lower legs. The tibia length increased by 5 to 6% in frogs closer to the mongooses, and the thigh length increased by 3 to 4% when they were 20 kilometers closer to the mongoose introduction point. Interestingly, um, the length, the distance they could leap in one hop wasn't affected but the number of jumps to exhaustion was affected and actually frogs nearer to the mongooses could hop 90% more times which I think was prior they could sort of average around 10 hops and afterwards when the mongooses or the ones near the mongooses were sort of nearing more like 19 20 hops mm-hmm. which is a lot yeah it was every like what 20 kilometers it increased by 90 percent or something outrageous it's, it's a, a big difference i would i do want to sort of caution that there um there's a lot of natural variation in in the leg measurements that aren't accounted for just by uh distance to to mongoose stuff i mean you're talking like what's that 12 percent i guess of, of of the variation in those in those leg measurements were accounted for by um by this this mongoose effect so there is a lot of natural variation still in there so this is very much a a small but quite visible effect yeah you know it's not it's not so <laughs> i don't know what the right term is it's it's not like all the frogs that with with a certain length of legs were being wiped out from a place there were still frogs with with smaller tibia lengths yeah in areas that were highly affected by mongoose, but they were just less likely to be to be present. It isn't, <laughs> and presumably less likely to survive. <laughs> well, exactly. That's it. That's that's exactly it. We'd, you you wonder if this had gone on a little bit further, this would become more and more pronounced. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it's still it's still pretty remarkable how how clear it is. Yeah, I mean, it is. Yeah, it's irrefutable that the frogs have evolved in the presence of these mongooses to be presumably better at evading them, which is well evolved but i i'm not sure if that's irrefutable because it, you don't know how much of this is plasticity versus genetic versus well, they, they did mention that because the frogs only live for three years so they can't it, it has to have some genetic element because the mongooses have been largely eradicated in part of the place so if they were adapting in an individual level to the mongooses a lot of them have still got these effects seven years after the mongooses have gone from where they are so individual plasticity can't explain it no at least if they if they can say for sure that like okay this frog still has long legs they look to see how long the frogs were living three years if there's a frog which is alive seven years after i I suppose i mean it would have in order for that to be in order for that to be true i i see your point because like yeah that you can't you'd have to guarantee they hadn't experienced the mongoose but their evidence does suggest that you know it's likely that they've genetically changed. I mean, it does seem. I mean, it would seem that way, wouldn't it? Because you would have thought that any plast. I mean, a plasticity would have to be introduced they'd, yeah, per they'd individual. Have to be, yeah, they'd have to so be exposed to a mongoose as like a juvenile, and then that would prompt mm. the growth or something. Which, yeah, without mongooses, can't occur. And it's unlikely to. Yeah, it's not going to be like with a plasticity thing. They've been like pushed into a new sort of equilibrium or whatever. Because um, they they mentioned later on in the paper about the. The idea that now mongoose have been re- uh, removed, you would assume with such a high selective pressure that now that relaxed those um, the leg lengths and, and jumping and stuff should sort of relax back down potentially. Yeah, that's what if they said at the end. Well, they'll relax back down if there is a cost sort of pushing it back down. Yeah. Otherwise, I guess it's just going to sort of sit stationary. If there's no cost, but also no benefit either way, it's just going to be a mix of longer legs and shorter legs in the population as as is yeah yeah like mm. you say you'd anticipate them sort of going back but yeah if it doesn't cost anything to have longer legs why not just keep them but um yeah that would be very interesting to see how many years if it indeed if they do go back to work the way they were how many years yeah. that takes because it was what was also neat they they 
showed that this wasn't happening with SVL either. It wasn't happening with just frog size. It was specifically the legs this was acting on. Yeah. Um, but there was one. Wasn't there an aspect of what was it length that was increasing? Yeah, longer tibia length increased jump distance, but jump distance wasn't affected by the mongoose as such. But also didn't help with number of jumps. There was there was some mismatch, wasn't there? Some mismatch. Yeah, there was something. Um, what was it? Oh no, there was an effect on on the tibia length with the mongoose. It just they didn't see the performative benefits of that tibia length, which is in turn like the the jump distance didn't seem to be a big deal. The Number of jumps did seem to be a big deal, but we have this thing where the tibia length was also increasing with the mongoose pressure, yeah, but it didn't seem to be connected to number of jumps, which would be the logical explanation for it. So tibia length is somehow connected, like it maybe it's a sort of secondary thing or a non-adaptive thing, or it's been pulled along with with another leg measurement. Um, what was THL? Thigh length. Thigh length. So maybe it's sort of being pulled along with thigh length, so it isn't strongly associated with the uh, number of jumps, but it's still increasing enough to, in relation to uh, where the mongoose are, that it that it's being picked up there. Like it, or it's just another trait which is also being affected by the presence of mongoose, which is affecting uh, tibia length, which they didn't measure. Yes. Yeah, or am I just confusing things? <laughs> a little, uh, maybe a little bit. <laughs> I don't know. Um, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. That might be a bit. I don't know. I'm not quite sure. Um, Basically, there's there's there is tibia length which is increasing with where there are mongies. Yeah, but tibia length appeared unconnected to jump distances. Yeah, right. It did. It was connected to, uh, sorry, number of jumps. Tibia length was not connected to number of jumps, but it was connected to jump distances. But jump distances was not a f- connected to mongoose presence. So it might but just tibia be kind of a, still was. So it might be um, like a a benefit which is not beneficial against the mongoose, but it is just generally a thing yeah, that they've gained. But- it could be an, a, a sort of non-adaptive thing. It could be something connected to the See, other now, leg measurement. This yeah. this kind of makes me think about the next paper we're going to talk about a little bit, um, which is kind of like the um, the sort of unintended outcomes. Not unintended of, I guess, none of these outcomes yeah, well, is explicitly well, in, intended. Incidental. Incidental. Yeah. So yeah. imagine imagine a case where right this frog it's got incidentally long longer tibias now and okay that's given it a greater jump distance in one jump and mm-hmm. this is all tied into the effect of the mongooses but imagine if the mongoose predation pressure caused this change in the frogs which then actually led to them being better at not only at evading mongooses but also evading their native predators it would be an okay. interesting way for native predators to get done over imagine this uh-huh. right so the tibia length contributes to a longer leap length oh what do you know longer leap lengths good for getting away from what the oversimplified ambush predator we had at the beginning of the paper aka okay. the habu yeah. that would be really cool like oops inadvertently now the habu's having a harder time catching those frogs that can leap too far Right, and now you've introduced a new a new potential benefit of having this this jumping. Now you've removed the evidence of it being a genetic component at all. It could be plastic. It could oh. be phenotoplasticity because you have a new suddenly that the way it's interacting with a predator has suddenly changed, and there's a benefit. It just needed a big selective pressure to get there to begin with, Damn. but less of a selective pressure to maintain it. Damn nature, you complicated. I don't know, but that's exactly it. It is complicated and you're never going to be able to really grab all the variables that's being affected. What's fascinating is they've got this really clear relationship between uh, the phi length and where the mongoose are and a nice explanatory thing with number of jumps being connected to that that leg trait and potentially the ability to to dodge mongoose. (laughs) So from dodging mongoose to dodging bullfrogs, let's move on to paper dos. Bullfrogs are found in all of Missouri and live in many places. 
They are the largest of our frogs and are often over six inches long. Bullfrogs breed in early summer, but their call can be heard from April till September. The deep familiar call of a bullfrog is a natural part of Missouri's outdoors. Here's what a group of bullfrogs sound like. And this one is... Kim Halstead Rootman and Anderson 2021, When Introduced Prey Violates Trophic Hierarchy, Conservation of an Endangered Predator, published in Biological Conservation. Okay. I'm excited because we're talking about a snake that's got blue on it, which you don't often see. No. Name me a few blue snakes, Ben. Uh, Trumerosaurus insularis. But, but, but. Um... Uh, is it interstitial scales of green tree pythons occasionally blue? Yes, yeah, and sometimes they themselves can even be blue. Um, I feel like there's a Dendrolaphis. Oh, yes. Punctasis, uh, maybe, has got a bit of blue on it. Yeah, yeah. Is it? I think so. Pictus? Pictus. Yeah, it might be Pictus. I always get those two mixed up. I think it is Pictus that's got a blue confused. face. Blue face. Oh, you've, of course, got... Uh, who's that blue-tongued boy? Um, no, it's got kind of a bluey neck, Pictus, I guess. When it spreads it out, yeah, and a bit of blue. I think it's oh my it's brain! It's the 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 green the uh, green rat snake, red-tailed green rat snake. Oh, Gonyosoma. That's a ticket. <clears throat> they come in blue, do they? Wicked, wicked. Well, uh, blue tongues, if I remember. Oh, oh. Which I mean, that's a snake with blue on it. It's just on the inside bit. You did quite well <laughs> with blue snakes. Yeah, I can't think of any more. <laughs> You'd think there'd be a blue one in the sea, right? But I've never seen one. I don't know. Maybe it's, I, think there, I think there is. Maybe it's naive to assume that animals in the sea are blue. Um, <laughs> okay, so we're talking about invasive species still. Um, but I alluded a minute ago to the kind of complicated relationship. And I think the form, the paper we've just discussed kind of evidences the fact that invasive species and their native counterparts have complicated relationships. Um The example they use at the start of this paper to demonstrate the complicated nature of those relationships is that of round gobies, which are an invasive fish introduced to Lake Erie. They're not completely round, but they are called round gobies. Uh, They are sort of more generally fish shaped. Um, Well, yeah, they're like, you know, you're a classic goby, massive head, very sort of characterful looking fish. But they were introduced to Lake Erie. And as a result, the water snakes that live on Lake Erie, which are Nerodia sipidon insularum, actually shifted their diet to be over 90% gobies, and it led to faster growth rates and larger body sizes for the snakes. Uh, this was published in the King et al. paper in 2006, which was brilliantly named Gorging on Gobies, Beneficial yeah. Effects of Alien Prey on a Threatened Vertebrate, which is just brilliant. So yeah, that, that kind of evidence is that, yeah, invasive species can arrive and they can sometimes end up being an important prey source for an animal. And in some cases, the animal for which they are an important prey source is itself an imperiled species as a result of human activity, as is the case in the Lake Erie water snakes. So invasive species may not necessarily be bad. In this case, we're talking about, well, obviously, they're they're, they're, they're in order to be designated an, 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 an invasive species, they have to have some kind of deleterious effects. Otherwise, they wouldn't get designated an invasive species. But that's not to say they have purely negative effects. They might have some positives. And in this case, we're talking about the San Francisco garter snake, which is the snake which has blue on it, Thamnophis satalis tetrataina. And we're talking about its relationship with the invasive American bullfrog, Lithobates catesbarianus. Um, Excuse me? <clears throat> no, you heard. Uh, their relationship oh. is complicated, to say the least. Uh, together they experience this term. Uh, this term is really, it's a heavyweight term. Reciprocal intraguild predation. It means they eat each other. It means they eat each other. And it means yeah. they eat each other at, at different life stages, right? So it would be, you know, maybe when the guard snakes are babies... The bullfrogs are coming along, tucking into them. And similarly, when the bullfrogs are tadpoles, the gutter snakes slurp them right down. But when both animals are adults, they don't They've compete. got a beautiful uh, food web. Yes, I one. really enjoyed seeing a this food was web. This, yeah. So we've got the little native prey items, like the Sierra and tree frogs. They're eaten by 
pretty much everybody bar juvenile and larval bullfrogs. Yes. We then have the juvenile garter snakes, and they are eaten by adult bullfrogs. We have the adult garter snakes. They're fine. They don't get eaten by anything. We also have the adult bullfrogs. They're fine. They don't get eaten by anything. Too big. In this little system. You know, I mean, obviously they get eaten by birds and all sorts, but... Then we have the juvenile and larval bullfrogs, and these guys have the toughest time because they're eaten by adult garter snakes, but also adult bullfrogs. <laughs> yeah, that's one so thing. Them the garter snakes and the, and the native shared prey—they're having a tough time. Yeah, <laughs> the garter snakes don't eat their own, which I do respect. The bullfrogs—they don't care. I mean, I I get the impression that bullfrogs don't really have a lot of choice how they react when they see something move. They just seem to lunge as a sort of stereotypical behavior. <laughs> something move. Bah! get it so regardless of what it is whether it's edible afterwards exactly so yeah we had this nice food web and as you said ben it demonstrates nicely that these animals are interacting in complicated ways it's not just a simple predator prey situation so we have a situation where the bullfrogs might be harming the snakes if the predation pressure that they represent as adults is very high on the juvenile snakes because obviously These are endangered species and we don't want the bullfrogs munching them all if that's what they're going to be doing. Conversely, if the snakes are relying heavily on juvenile bullfrogs as their main prey source and then we come in, eradicate the bullfrogs, over the short term, the snakes might not be able to adapt to that reduction in prey and it could have a negative effect on the snakes of removing the bullfrogs. Or it could have negative effects on the shared prey. Because the supplementary source has been removed, therefore there is a greater pressure on, say, the Sierra and tree frogs or something along those lines. Right. Yeah. So it does get very complicated very quickly. It does. Essentially- it, it harks back to the all this all this sort of complication going to have to fiddle with the environment to try and fix it could have been prevented if you stop the invasive species to begin with. Yes. If you don't give them a chance to be introduced, if you're not moving them around in in ways that they. You know, prevention is the best the best solution here i mean it's a little bit late Mm -hmm. yeah the story behind this introduction was actually someone wanted to farm the bullfrogs so someone had a little ranch and uh, the whole whole problem is is mediated on someone wanting to make money out of these creatures (laughs) which uh, it's not great yeah the bullfrog the bullfrog farm the bullfrog farm has caused problems down the road um yeah now it's a bullfrog ranch I suppose, but no one yeah, wants fr- them. Yeah, free range. <laughs> yeah, free range bullfrogs. What anyway, were they farmed so, uh, for? Food? What's that? What, what were they you? farmed for? What 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 is well? I what is the product that a poor bullfrog is turned into? I know. I would assume it was frogs' yeah. legs. Have you? Yeah, I think they farm. They still farm frogs in Asia for frogs' legs. Yeah. On mass, on mass. So perhaps it was for frogs' legs. I, d- I can't think unless some of them get dissected, don't they? Um, by school kids but oh god i can't imagine i can't imagine i can't imagine a demand. farm to supply that yeah it must be for food it. it must be for frogs legs as food yeah i know like so, um, yeah. african clawed frogs have medical applications and stuff and that's why they moved around a lot but well they used to be the old pregnancy test didn't they well precisely yeah the authors of this paper basically set out to find out what all these different animals are eating well what the bullfrogs are eating what the san francisco garter snakes are eating and essentially understand what the nature of this relationship was and who's eating who and in what quantities and yeah which way is it going and to try and Mm -hmm. get a handle on what would happen if they did elect to remove the bullfrogs from this environment well not not really if they did elect to they already were well they already were the decision had been made i suppose what i mean to say is um what will the outcome be for the garter snakes? Yeah, exactly. What, what will the outcome out. supposed to? Yeah, yeah like, <laughs> to put, okay. Yeah, don't yeah, present no, it sorry. like it's... <laughs> We're here to kill the frogs. So can you get out of the way? We've all got our bashing sticks here. So if you could just step aside. Yeah, we'd like to know what will happen to the garter snakes, but it's not going to make a lot of difference. The frogs are getting whacked. Yeah, it, yeah, it's certainly not... It's, it's, it's not a before, <laughs> let's make sure everything's fine before we do this. No, okay, yeah, that's... Uh, it's not that. It's the yeah, because this paper takes this paper uh, reports on after the frogs have all been whacked. So yeah, yeah. Um, so where are we? Presumably California. Yes, we are in sunny California in San Mateo County. There we go. Nice. U.S. of A. 
Yes. I mean, what do you want to get into? Should we just, should we get stuck into what the things had been eating? I mean, I think so. I think we've, basically we have this scenario where we have, they have a couple of sites. It's site A and site B. Very Jurassic Park. Yep. Isla Sauna and Isla Nubla. Uh-huh. And site A, where they had a, a long and confusing uh, sort of scenario with the pond. There's a series of ephemeral ponds and some permanent water bodies um, but basically, this is where the bullfrogs were. Uh, the bullfrogs were cold in 2014 and 15, and the lake also dried up in 2014. Um, so basically, a whole bunch, well, these invasive bullfrogs were sort of wiped out alongside a bunch of other invasive fish species. Yeah, it sounded like Pond A, was it? Was basically just yeah, a breeding a, ground. Yeah, yeah for mm-hmm. non native fish and just a just a mess frogs. yeah yeah it was basically just there was non-native catfish in there wasn't there um yeah yep. bullhead stuff. catfish large mouth cat. bass and bluegill sounds like the those are the fish that people put in fishing lakes i think so right i mean this whole thing sounds like a if, if the bullfrogs were introduced for farming purposes it sounds like a lot of things were introduced for farming or, or food purposes so either way they seem to all get wiped out in the, at the end of 2014. Because there's no water in the lake. Because Yeah. The fish didn't like that? Uh, they had a tough time. They <laughs> had a tough time? Uh, I can't speak of their emotional state during that time, <laughs> but they certainly did all die. I can't imagine a scene more grim and depressing than a lake drying out and all the fish dying. So I can only imagine that it was macabre and the fish were down in the dumps. But hey, some bullfrogs survived. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, the colour finished them off later on in 2015. So like, B... Uh, no bullfrogs, no invasive fish. Just snakes and they their did, native prey? Yep, and their native prey. Uh, did dry also, but I'm not entirely positive if it dried completely out or not. Okay. But it experienced the same dry period as Site A. So, so there's your sort of a. scenario. We've got a couple of years worth of, worth of sampling, 2014-15, but... Uh, it's placed in the context of a, a longer period of study for the snakes themselves that go back to what, like 2007, I believe it was. Yeah, back to 2007. But we only really have the the bullfrog investigation, sort of 2014 through, what's that, 17, perhaps? Yeah. So it's quite a short, sharp study. And it sort of starts with that really weird uh, drought-heavy year. So do, you know, do bear that in mind in terms of context. So what do they find? Basically, going out sampling for bullfrogs as part of the eradication effort. Yeah, they basically just looked inside a bunch of the frog. Yeah, they, the bunch of the bullfrogs that had been culled, yeah. they cut them open and see what was in their tummies. Yeah, yeah. See see what they're eating. The simultaneous snake studies actually sort of looking at snake populations of, and uh, they're getting incidental sort of dietary stuff from those snakes for the ones that they... they um, they get regurgitated prey or, or fecal samples from. Um, they're yeah. not forcing that. No. Because that's I, not the, the primary reason for this for the study, and they're not wanting to affect a... a God, what are they classified as, these snakes? Are they, endangered, are they I think. Endangered? Yeah. yeah. It's, um, it's something that happens when you handle a wild snake. If they've eaten recently, it's like... I think it's just a stress response. They regurgitate what they've eaten. Well... They didn't regurgitate much because, I mean, no. 97 of this was mostly from fecal, which is the whole musk defense response instead of that's the regurgitation uh, one. So. <laughs> that's always a fun one. We do it. We collect fecals for the very similar reason for this, intent, intent on doing some um, DNA stuff. Maybe get uh, unclear yet, but we've collected the fecal samples anyway. And it's quite a funny thing when uh, you can see this like a little bulge. You're holding a snake and it's like there's a little bulge right down there near the cloaca. It's like, get the <laughs> open the vial and then like get, hold the hold the vial below the snake and then when you get that perfect poo coming out and slotting directly into the vial deeply satisfying put that lid on you make it you make it, yeah exactly in the paper it sounds all very controlled it's like oh just simply simply put the vial below the snake and collect the fecal sample when in reality you know you've just caught this this snake from the wild it's woken up it's it's grumpy you're scraping the fecal sample off your clothes is what you're saying ben yeah, yeah, and it, and it stinks. <laughs> <laughs> and if they and these snakes eat frogs, and sometimes, although seemingly not much, fish. So the poo probably doesn't smell great. Yeah, 
yeah, I can, no. <laughs> no. Um, but yeah, so that's what we got. We got bullfrogs, we got snakes, we're trying to work out their diets, that's what they're going for. So what what are what's the best way to summarize these findings then? Basically that there was an apparent sort of sizable overlap. In the prey they're eating, yeah. The frogs yeah. and I think the, the the quick and dirty way to summarize this is that both the bullfrogs and the snakes were eating native Sierra and tree frogs and California red legged frogs. Yeah. Um, they both preferred Sierra and tree frogs over the California red legged frogs, but they liked actually, both. Actually preferred? Can we say preferred? No, we can't. We can say that they uh, ate more ate of them. Ate more of them. Right. Yeah. Good, so, good distinction. Nice catch. Exactly. The distinction there is being maybe those are just easier to get, so they're not preferring them, or maybe they're more abundant, i.e. easier to get, therefore not preferring them. Yes. One thing they found which was quite telling was that the San Francisco garter snakes weren't really eating American bullfrogs. In all the snakes they sampled, they only had DNA evidence of a bullfrog being in one of the fecal samples. Yeah, which is sort of... I mean, if this with those two sort of findings, we're now can get to this point of, of putting that back into the context of the food web scenario and these, this potential scenario, well not a potential scenario <laughs> the actual scenario of when these frogs are fully removed what's going to happen with the garter snakes it seems like they're going to have a little bit of release on the uh, competition for their prey right, oh. which, is, which is probably beneficial yeah? because they're not using the bullfrogs so you're not taking a prey source from them but you are eliminating potentially a source of competition on their native prey, which they, they seem to be going for. Mm. And similarly, the American bullfrogs weren't really seen, seen to be eating many uh, garter snakes. In fact, they only found one snake in 40 frog bellies. And they did some uh, clever working out. They, they had like one ventral scale. So they sampled the sizes of ventral scales from a bunch of different garter snakes and tried to work out what size of snake that that scale would have come from and they worked out it was a sub-adult individual of less than probably less than two years old so the yeah the only evidence of a bullfrog eating a gut snake was that of a sub-adult snake not an adult snake hence why earlier on we said that they don't really eat the adults one thing they did find which was quite cool um well actually they didn't find it themselves they mentioned it from a f previous study way back in 2006 which suggested that actually um, San Francisco garter snakes don't really like eating bullfrogs and when they were made to eat bullfrogs when they were given bullfrogs to eat they frequently regurgitated them so it's unlikely that the bullfrogs were ever going to be a major prey source for the San Francisco garter snakes yeah the other sort of slightly more uh, I suppose less certain I forget the proper word for it but speculative I suppose I like how you resisted saying dubious it, well, I don't think it is dubious. It, it's just, <laughs> I was just there are to... limitations from the data which they can't say certain things about. But yeah, they, absolutely. They're, they're getting there. Um, and that's that the garter snake population has increased in site A post-2014 with the removal of the bullfrogs. Um, there's a lot of uncertainty around that population estimate. And there's sort of suggestions that maybe it's due to the increased, uh, increased uh, precipitation. Which makes sense, you know, this might be a recovering environment from a pretty severe drought. Yeah. So, eh. Snakes need water to live just like everything else. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they are seeing a, a sort of negative association between the abundance of adult bullfrogs and the proportion of new recruits, i.e. new snakes. But the uncertainty around all these estimates are very large. Yeah. I mean, you can't say a lot, can you, when you've got a situation where a drought has literally eradicated all living things a year before there's very limited things you can say because you're just it not is. you're not studying a stable environment no no and and the other issue is you've only got several years you don't have that much before data i think i think if they had more years before of abundance of bullfrogs and things then then more could be said certainly if you had that plus abundance of their primary prey mm. with the tree frogs you know if you start getting a few more data points in that web but then we're—I mean—we're talking a very complicated study at that point. This is already complicated enough to be, to be frank. But it's—it it seems like good news for the for the garter snakes. There, they seem to be improving. Whether that's due to the removal of the bullfrogs, or that's largely, you know, can be accounted for by the recovery from a low count in 2014 with this with this uh, drought. Drought, yeah. It's not certain because certainly. 
Site B, where there was no boo frogs, was also quite low with snakes in in 2014-15. So, yeah, it's it's you don't you don't want to you don't want to assign all that variation, all that improvement to a single factor when those two things could be connected or neither of them. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But I think uh, the take home message of this paper is you know invasive species to really understand their impacts, you need to have an understanding of their trophic interactions and to mm-hmm. do that you need to look at who's eating who and why and uh yeah the the story is going to be more complicated because although in this right. case they did the thorough investigation and they found okay right so these two animals are eating each other as juveniles but not really um and they're sharing a prey source okay brilliant now we know that this eradication is all right if there is another situation where the invasive species had was a major prey for for example and it had also outcompeted the other major prey removing that in that species would be extremely detrimental to the ones that had come to rely on it obviously we didn't have that situation here but it's possible yeah. so it's always good to check because with nothing left to eat regardless of how that situation arose animals will die yeah you could fix you could fix the habitat but if you've just completely removed their prey it's going to do very little but at the same time, you know, you're, you're talking about this like, okay, check check the effects in terms of species numbers and stuff, which is absolutely right. That's that's something to be done. But you remember back to the the first paper, there's also a whole nother level of, of effect occurring to the actual animals themselves and the selective pressures they're under that might not just be affecting their numbers, but basically the phenotype, how that animal looks and behaves itself. Yeah. And that is makes this whole thing more fascinating and more interesting but a whole much more complicated because it's not just you have a prey item or you have a new source of predation in an environment and it'll change your numbers because it might not change your numbers if you have the capabilities or the flexibility to react and avoid it Mm. so it's all these little buffers and sort of counterbalances which and and interconnections like like this paper's showing so yeah, it's a complicated picture out there with invasive species. Mm-hmm. Take home message. Absolutely. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. I think we should move on to our species of the bye week. Yes, our species of the bye week. Okay, it's by Okamia, Sigobara, Nagano, and. Poyakov, 2018, an integrative taxonomic analysis reveals a new species of lotic hynobius salamander from Japan, published in Pidge, aka Pidge A. <laughs> Pidge. <laughs> Turn the Pidge. <laughs> okay, so, um, yeah, as I said, stream breeding hynobeard salamanders, they're from montane areas of western, central and eastern parts of Honshu Island in Japan. And this was a big um, study using various mitochondrial DNA markers uh, to try and work out quite what's going on with this group of salamanders. And I don't suppose we want to get too in-depth. If you were interested in their main findings, you can seek the paper out. But we're here to talk about the brand new species, which has been described as a result. Yeah, I mean, this this is a big study, to be fair, and is and is getting at a lot more than just, oh, there's a new species. But, but who is our new species? Who are they? It's called Hynobius fossigenus. It's really cool, actually. It's derived from the Latin words fossa, which means pit or hollow, and genus, meaning born in. So it basically means born in a hole. <laughs> born in a hole. Hollow born. And a new name is given in reference of the new species distribution, which is on both sides of something called the Itoigawa Shizuka tectonic line. Uh, the western boundary is Fossa Magna, which is the major rift zone in central Honshu. So again, it's named after tectonic features in the environment. We had a species a few weeks ago that was named after uh, that massive massif, wasn't it? Um, mm. Which is pretty cool. So this seems to be some kind of new trend, maybe, or maybe it's just uh, something <laughs> that people have always done and we just haven't clocked it up till now. Yeah. But- but if it is a new trend, I'm all for it. I think, yeah, it could bring tectonic plates into the environment. Geology traditionally has been a very boring, outdated study, which no one's, you know, that sort of <laughs> excited by. So I think if you can suck some of that into the herpetological realm, inject it with a bit of passion, fervor and salamanders, why not? <laughs> 
And these are pretty decent, you know, these are all right salamanders, aren't they? They're, they're 66 to <laughs> they're all right. Males. I'd say they're all right. I don't love them. Males, they're fine. No, like they are cool. 75 to 82 in, in females. So, you know, Sorry, what's that in inches, Ben? Um, <laughs> I don't know. Divide 82.5 by two and a half. <laughs> it's a few inches long. They're not massive, are they? They're not massive, but um, they're they're pretty they're pretty cute. Uh, they got that sort of classic salamander shape, and the coloration they're quite a dark slaty grey with speckly gold orange sort of flicks, like they've been been flicked by a uh, a paintbrush or something along those lines. It's it's mm. yeah, they've got yeah. quite a nice larval stage as well, and quite big too. Yeah, the larvae is countershaded. It's got a nice white belly and then like the sort of mottled browny orange on top. Yeah, and just beginning those orange specks coming through, you can see how that transitions into uh, this rather striking black and orange salamander. And what do we know about them? What do they do? What do they do? What does any salamander do? They writhe around on the floor <laughs> and sort of lotic. Lotic environments, correct? Yes, yes. Fresh um, water, fresh still water, right? Lotic? No, yeah. lo- no, no. Yes, 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 yes. Yeah. Only it says because that they're it- found in headwaters at one at one stage, which is kind of odd. But I oh, okay. It's a mountain stream they're found in, eggs and lava. But then maybe I thought lotic was still water. I oh, it's rapidly moving fresh water. Yeah, we got it wrong. Oh, okay. So what? Oh, we were thinking of whatever the one is for lakes. What that is that? with an L, doesn't it? Lentic. Is it Lotic and Lentic? Isn't it Lentic? Yeah, Lentic. It... Situated in still fresh water. Yeah. It, nice. There we go. There we Got go. The with same coin, different side. So they like the fast water after all. And I think you can see that They're if you look, seekers, at their yeah. you look at their little feet. They look like a grip on. Grippy, big. Yep. Yep. They really do, don't they? And that big, strong tail. And they're quite ribbed as well. The ribbed mm. is a feature of salamanders, which I do enjoy. As many other members of Lotic Hynobius, Halobius phosogenus reproduces in the headwaters of small mountain streams with cold, well-aerated water. Seasonal water temperature does not exceed 20 degrees. They're usually very narrow, the streams, and shallow, and they like it in evergreen forests. And once they metamorphose, you can find them under rotten logs, fallen leaves or stones, or debris near the breeding stream hanging out. And they gather around the stream in November... Hiding under stones, they breed in December through April, and then they lay eggs in February and March. In cold water as well, like 5.5 to 7 degrees C. So these must be living pretty slow lives down there. And they only lay a pair of eggs. Oh no, a pair of egg sacs. And each of these egg sacs contains a number of eggs. So they actually know quite a lot about this species. Well, yeah, I mean, if it's been split from quite a a studied studied group and you sort of check up on them and... Yeah, I suppose they've been studying them and now they realise that they're different. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the impression I got, was wow. that there was probably a lot of stuff coming before that was that was grouped. Yeah. They cannibalise the younger... The larvae, older larvae eat younger larvae, so they're filthy cannibals. And um, they take a long time to reach sexual maturity as well. Seven years for females, five years for males. Wow. So these salamanders are doing a lot of living before they're ready to reproduce. Keep them safe. That's all that means. Keep them safe for as long as possible, right? Yeah. Give them an actual chance. Very cool. Very nice little new species. All right, Wicked. I think that summarizes our, or that draws to a close our episode on invasive species and their interactions with native species. Um, Have you got any other business? Um, I think finally, after talking about it for literal months and they're never doing it, we might have some new t-shirts. Yeah, yeah. Which yes, I think I we can make I, live tomorrow. Ben's done some really cool new t-shirts for the podcast. So head over to our Redbubble store if you like either um, spider-tailed vipers, pseudocerastes, arachnoides, which, come on now, one of the coolest snakes ever. Uh, it also features a bird, if you're into that sort of thing. It's birds as victims. <laughs> um, and the other one is Ouroboros, right? The girdled lizard that... Makes armadillo a circle. lizard. Armadillo lizard. Armadillo lizard. Or, or girdled armadillo lizard. I think they've got multiple names. Armadillo but... girdling lizard. Um, yeah. Ho- hopefully they come out all right with with Red Bubbles printing printing oh, style. I yeah. mean, every t shirt anyone's ever like bought of us has been great, and they look fantastic. Yeah. They. Li- I like that they're different. They're sort of like white. The designs are white, 
to be printed on black, which looks really or, or cool. Or dark colours, I would suggest. Yeah. 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 I mean, Redbubble will let you order a white print on a white t-shirt. Don't be that person because, I mean, it's it'll be your fault. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, but have, a, have a look if you're interested in some uh, herpetology-themed garms. And um, I've got some other news as well. We've got a couple of new Patreons. So shout out to Emily Vaughan Williams and Jake Hansen. Thank you very much. Mm, Pair of legends. And uh, yeah, on our last episode, you might recall, I mentioned, I was like, we, I had a bit of a preoccupation with whether or not the Burmese pythons in your radio telemetry paper had been eating puppies. Do you remember this? Uh, yes. Have we got well, evidence that they were eating puppies? I haven't, no, I Let haven't me, got evidence of okay. this. However, uh, Nick Sakic, friend of the podcast, messaged and he said he had read a paper where they we're talking about the boa constrictors, which are in the dust, Dutch West Indies. So there's a population of boa constrictors, which were introduced to Aruba in the Dutch West Indies. I don't know what the story behind those ones is, but there's a few of these um, islands where boas are introduced. Cozumel is another one which I think is in the similar area. But yeah, basically snakes arrive, classic story. Um, but he heard us mention puppies getting eaten and the paper contains the following line. This is a paper by Reinert et al. And it says, uh, one large snake, total length two meters, contained five newborn puppies, Canis familiaris. Total Holy combined smokes. mass, one point, nearly one point, nearly two kilograms of puppies. Um, so yeah. You know, big constrictors will eat puppies. It's not. This, it's, it's this, not. I mean, what's the lesson here? Uh, don't let snakes become invasive or yep. introduced or anything along those lines. Uh, keep your puppies safe and probably indoors. Yes, keep your puppies indoors. Keep your puppies away from boa constrictors. Don't have stray dogs roaming about a place because they're also a non-native species <laughs> they yep, keep dogs yep, inside yep. dogs are no different than anything else we bash cats on the podcasts you know but dogs are just um you know tend, meat, i feel like dogs snuffling pollution have, machines yeah they have less of an impact <laughs> on herpetofauna but they have equally massive impacts on other species that we tend not to talk much about because they just happen not to be herpetofauna but I think, I mean, it just comes down to just stop invasive species going places. Uh, it's, a lot of these are, well, it's all our fault. <laughs> oh, yeah. Unfortunately. I mean, it would be harsh fault. to blame the puppies in this situation, Ben. They've been consumed. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, the, puppy, <laughs> the puppies are blameless. Stupid puppies are your own damn fault. Um, yeah. No, you're right. Yeah. Yeah. Dogs do have negative consequences. Hey, so listen, I think uh, that's all the other business I've got. So thanks very much to Nick for the message and our Patreons. And yeah, go to Redbubble, check out if you want to have a herpetology-themed t-shirt. And I think all that remains to be said is you can get in touch with us via Gmail, herphighlights at gmail.com. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. And yeah, anything we got wrong, if we've horribly misrepresented your paper, get in touch and we will do our best to correct ourselves. Yeah, of course, always. always. Thanks very much for listening. Thank you for listening. 